Well, good morning again. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're continuing a sermon series that we've been in that we really we started back in September, going through the Gospel of Mark, and now we've come back to it in February, going through the second half of the Gospel of Mark. So Mark 11 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, Mark 11 is traditionally known as, at least the beginning of Mark 11, as the triumphal entry where Jesus finally arrives and enters into Jerusalem. So as I've reflected over our text this week and the last few weeks, I've thought about dramatic entrances, because this is a dramatic entrance into the city. So naturally, when I think of entrances, I think of sports, because I'm a sports fan. So if you think about especially professional sports, it's a team, whether it's a team sport or an individual sport, there's always some sort of entrance that takes place before the games begin. There's an announcer who will announce names or announce the team. You know, here comes whoever it may be, the Dallas Cowboys, whatever sport team you like or follow. And then they run out onto the field. And when they run out onto the field, there might be fireworks and there's music playing and there's fans cheering or sometimes there's fans booing. But there's a, a dramatic entrance of sorts. Uh, we like our grand entrances in the world that we live in. Uh, I was involved in my own grand entrance one time many years ago. See, I went to ACU and I had a roommate named Emil Brown. Uh, we lived together, roommates together, for five years, so he became one of my good friends. When I was married, he was a groomsman in my wedding, uh, and when he got married, I was a groomsman in his wedding. So he's from California. I flew to California. We, uh, I showed up for the wedding. I was a part of the wedding party. Uh, we had the ceremony. Um, and after it was over, they announced that everybody uh, go to the reception hall, but if you're in the wedding party, you stick around for pictures and things like that. So we did our pictures, and then they're getting ready to take us over to the reception hall. And I found out for the first time that we're doing our own entrances. So I was a little nervous. What do you do when you get your own individual entrance into a wedding reception? So uh, I find out during that time that each person is going to have music playing, and you go out to the dance floor, and you do a little dance. <laughs> so the groomsmen go out. I'm groomsman number two. The other groomsmen go out. Uh, they do a little dance. One guy's spinning around on the dance floor. Everybody's cheering. And so it's my turn. And I'm a little nervous. Uh, I didn't know this was a part of the deal. So they call my name. They say, Groomsman number two, Jody Garner. They play the music. I'm walking out. There's people to my right and my left. Uh, and I should tell you at this point that I was the only Caucasian person at the entire wedding, not just in the wedding party, but at the entire thing. So the only thing I could think to do was to do the most Caucasian thing I could think of, and I just started doing the robot on the dance floor. <laughs> and that's what it sounded like when I did it. <laughs> everybody else got, like, cheering and stuff like that, but everybody just laughed at me. And uh, I went and I sat with my roommate's family, and Mr. Uh, Mr. Brown, Emil's dad, said, Hey, Jody, have you ever heard of that saying, one of these things is not like the other? That's what <laughs> just happened. And he kept asking, you know, they were laughing at me, like, what was that? What do you call that? Uh, regardless, it was a grand entrance. I had everybody's attention. Everybody was watching. Music was playing. In Mark 11, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's a grand entrance. 
Right? There's not music playing, there's not a dance floor, but there are people watching and there are people anticipating what is about to happen. So I want to start this morning with reading Mark 11, verse 1 through 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, which, quick side note, Beth, Bethpage means house of ripe figs. So that'll come into play when we get to this fig tree story in just a minute. Near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and they said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will, be you will find tie there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near the door outside the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the, the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So the song that Tony just led us in is very fitting for this. Then he entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So whether or not you realize that this, this story that we just read has two entrances. And really there's three in the entire story we're reading today. Two of the entrances, like the entering into Jerusalem was dramatic, but the second entrance is very anticlimactic. And then he'll enter again into the temple, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, this has been a long time coming. You know, for the last few chapters in the Gospel of Mark, we have looked at these three passion predictions and how Jesus is telling his disciples when we get to Jerusalem that he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to die. So for Jesus, there's this sense of finality in the air. But for everyone else, there's a sense of excitement. It's Passover time. So thousands of people would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, to participate in the festival, to offer their sacrifices. And some say that the population in Jerusalem tripled around this time each year. A sense of excitement for the Jews. For the Romans, it was, there was a little bit of fear and uneasiness because around Passover time, there have been many revolts against Roman soldiers, so they had to bring in backups and reinforcements. So regardless of whether or not Jesus enters into Jerusalem, there's already a feeling in the air, a sense of excitement, but it's enhanced because this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, who's been doing all these great things, is arriving, and he's arriving in dramatic form. Now, he makes preparations. He sends some of his disciples ahead, and he said, find a colt, and if anybody asks you what you're doing with it, say, the Lord needs it. Now, whether or not Jesus went out and made those preparations, we don't really know what that looks like. But regardless, it seems like Jesus is prepared. And I really like this about Jesus. He's prepared when he enters Jerusalem. He's prepared in Mark 14, before the Last Supper, before he takes this Passover meal with his disciples. He makes preparations. You know, as a preacher, I have sought out other seasoned preachers to mentor me, to give me advice and help me along the way. 
And there's one preacher who's mentored me who has told me over and over, never show up unprepared. There's no excuse for that. So I can confidently say that every Sunday morning you may not connect with it. Maybe it's not the greatest sermon you ever heard, but I'll never show up unprepared. And that's one of the things I really like about Jesus is he is prepared. He knows what's coming and he makes preparations. So he's approaching Jerusalem the cult has been prepared. They bring it to Jesus, place their cloaks on, their cloaks on it. Uh, this signifies Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where he comes riding in on a cult. It's not a war horse, so he's not coming back from war. And the Gospel of Matthew really makes light of the humility side of this, but Mark just kind of moves forward with it. So he enters into Jerusalem. And the people are shouting Hosanna, and they're throwing the palm branches on the ground, throwing their cloaks over there. And so this is traditionally known as Palm Sunday in Christian tradition. And that usually takes place the Sunday before Easter. But where we're at, Mark, this, we're here today. We're here a month early. Uh, all along in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has kept this messianic secret. When he heals people, when he casts out demons, he tells them to not tell anyone. And now, all of a sudden, the messianic secret is gone, and he is allowing this to take place. This public declaration of who he is as he enters into Jerusalem. And they're spreading their cloaks on the ground, their palm branches on the ground, because that's what you do for royalty. Hosanna is a mixture of, of some Hebrew background, and the background is it's exuberant praise to God, but it's also a prayer anticipating that God will save his people. So I like this term, exuberant praise, and you can sense that in the crowd. As they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blesses the one coming in the kingdom of our ancestor David. So they don't fully understand why Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem and what he's planning on doing, because they're still expecting, like we talked about with James and John last week, this earthly kingdom. But regardless, they're excited, and they're receptive of Jesus, and they're shouting Hosanna, and they believe that he has the power to save, and Hosanna literally means save now. So this is the reception that Jesus has as he enters into Jerusalem, and I'm going to just pause on that and give you reflection question number one. As I've studied through this, you know, I try to discover and understand what the text means, but we're always looking, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? Like, how do we apply this to our life? And one of the reflection questions that I've pondered over this week is, when is the last time that I have been this receptive of Jesus in my own life? When is the last time that you've been this receptive of Jesus? You picture that crowd, as misinformed as they might be, they're still laying down in front of Jesus and praising and shouting and offering this exuberant praise. When's the last time you've been this receptive of Jesus? We're, we usually feel this way maybe at a baptism. When Jesus enters someone's life, there's a certain receptivity about that. But what about when Jesus re-enters your life? Or what about just on a weekly basis as you show up for worship here? And what about Monday through Saturday, are we this receptive of Jesus in our everyday life? Uh, at our church here, we have this mission statement. We want to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. 
And we have these seven commitments. You've heard us talk about these before. Some of you know the seven commitments really well, and some of you are not so familiar with them. But our commitment number two, and we, we have subpoints for each commitment. And commitment number two, the first subpoint, commitment number two A, is we will meet together and share in vibrant, sincere worship as we celebrate God and praise Him for all He is doing. So one of the things that we're committed to as a church is weekly as a body of being here and celebrating God, praising Him with vibrant and sincere worship. And maybe that term, Hosanna, that idea of exuberant praise would fit into this. This is why we think it's important for you to show up week after week and worship together because we need this. We need to be reminded of who God is and who's really on the throne. So when's the last time you showed up on a Sunday morning ready to offer God exuberant praise? And are we this receptive of Jesus throughout the week? So Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, he enters into Jerusalem. And then Mark 11, 11 He enters into the temple for the first time. So this is the second entrance story in Mark 11. And what Jesus does is he walks into the temple and he just looks around and then he leaves. Very anticlimactic compared to his first entrance. Now, the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem parallels how ancient warrior kings would return home after battle. You ride in on a horse, the people are there, the crowds are shouting praise to the king. And the first thing the king would do is go into the temple of his God and offer a sacrifice. And then the celebration would continue. So everything Jesus does up until this point, riding in on the colt, people praising him, is just like an ancient warrior king. But the difference is when Jesus goes into the temple, he just looks around and he leaves. The celebration doesn't continue. He doesn't offer a sacrifice. He looks around and he leaves the city. So very anticlimactic. But something I wrote down uh, last week as I was studying this and something that's been on my mind about this entrance is that Jesus enters with clarity. Jesus enters the most painful time of his life with absolute clarity. He is not seduced by the crowds. He doesn't say to himself, wow, they really do like me. Maybe I should change my mind and rethink this whole cross thing. When he enters Jerusalem, he's clear. He has clarity about what he's there to do. And he has a few things he wants to accomplish before the crucifixion. But he's not swayed by the crowd. He's not thrown off his mission. He has clarity. So the same for us. When we enter into a time of transition in our own lives or a time of trial or a time of pain, do we have this much clarity about our own convictions? Jesus wasn't developing his convictions on the fly. He knew what he was there to do. He had clarity. So and then Mark 11, verse 12 through 21 Uh, We get this next part of this story. He's still in this first week, the very next day. um, Jesus is going to go back into the temple. But one thing I should point out to you is there's a cursing of the fig tree. Then he goes into the temple, and then he comes back and he comments on the fig tree. This is known as a Markin sandwich. I've mentioned this a few times as we studied the Gospel of Mark. Mark likes to do this. This is how he tells the story. He'll start with one thing, go to something else, and then come back to whatever it was that he started with, and he does that with the fig tree in the temple here. So keep that in mind. 
as we read this because I think both the fig tree and the temple stories help explain each other. Let's start Mark 11, verse 12 through 21. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. He overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus begins this response to Peter by saying, have faith in God. And we'll look at that in just a moment. So we have this scenario here. There's a fig tree. And Mark tells us uh, it's not the season for figs. But Jesus is hungry and he goes over to find something to eat. And when there's no figs on the tree, he curses it. May no one eat from fruit from you ever again. And so if you're like me, the natural question is, what did the fig tree do wrong? You know, Mark has already told us it's not the season for figs. Why would Jesus be upset about that? And then after he goes into the temple and he clears out the temple, uh, the next day Peter sees this fig tree and he said, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered to its roots. I spent a lot of time reading through this and I have like seven or eight pages worth of notes on this. So to spare you all of that, I'm going to summarize what's happening in basically one little bullet point here. The fig tree is a dramatic parable. Jesus loves teaching parables, and sometimes the way he interacts with people or the way he interacts with nature is a way of teaching his disciples something, and that's what the fig tree is all about. Now, the meaning of the fig tree indicates two things. One, it's what Jesus does in the temple. He goes in the temple, and he clears it out. But then in Mark chapter 13 and verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples, you look at this massive structure, and not one stone will be left on top of another. The temple will eventually fall and be no more. And then in A.D. 70, the Romans come in and they destroy the temple and the temple is no more. So the fig tree represents what Jesus is about to do in the temple, clearing it out, but it's also a proleptic gesture, a prophetic event that will happen in the future. Jesus is warning them, showing them that eventually... The temple will be no more, and God is doing something new. So the fig tree represents the temple and the temple leadership. May no one eat fruit from you again, and it withered to its roots. That's what the fig tree represents. Well, let's talk about this temple scene. Jesus goes in there, and he cleans house. This is a big deal. Now, when I was in elementary school, the church that we grew up in, in Greenville, Texas, ended at almost 11.30 on the dot every Sunday. I don't know how they did that, especially now that I'm in ministry, because it seems to end at a different time each week, but somehow it was 11.30. 
And my parents loved to stick around and fellowship, and they would sometimes do that for half an hour or 45 minutes, so we wouldn't leave to go to lunch till 12 or 12.15. So me and my friend Jeff would go roam the building with no supervision, and as long as nothing bad happened, we were okay. Well, we were roaming the building one day, upstairs, different part of the building where the children's classes were, and we found this utility room that was unlocked. And we went in there, and we were snooping around, and we found a TV. And then we found an antenna. So we hooked up the TV. My friend Jeff was crafty, and he hooked up the antenna. And we were able to start watching a few channels, which included, for us as kids, which was really exciting, a professional wrestling show, a WCW Sunday morning show. So we started this new tradition. As soon as the closing prayer, as soon as they said amen, we would dart upstairs, hook up the TV, and watch WCW wrestling. And this went on for weeks, and nobody knew about it. So finally, we let my little brother and Jeff's little brother in on it. So Andy and Jacob would join us every Sunday. The four of us would go up there and watch the last half hour of WCW. We would imitate what we saw. We would play. We would wrestle. And there was this one wrestler named Alex Wright who would come to the ring, and he would do this little dance as he came to the ring. This is my second dance story this sermon and my last of my entire preaching career because I don't have any more after this. But he would dance as he'd go to the ring, and so we were imitating his little dance around this utility room, having a good time. We'd been doing this for weeks, and then all of a sudden, one day, boom, the door slams open and hits the wall, and there's Mr. Thompson, this guy that we're naturally afraid of anyways, and he cleans the building, and we stop dead in our tracks. We're doing this dance around the room, and he said, downstairs now. And we went downstairs with our heads held low, afraid of what was about to happen, and guess what he did? He walked over, unplugged the TV, and took the TV and the antenna down to his truck, and we never saw it again. He cleared us out of there, he kicked us out, and something that we were so used to doing was just suddenly taken away from us, and we were never able to go back there again. There's a feeling of like embarrassment and frustration and irritation with that, and there's also a feeling of shock when you're just caught dead in your tracks. It's like a system, like shock is sent through your system. And thankfully, Mr. Thompson went downstairs, found my dad, and we were really worried about that. And he said, I caught your boys watching wrestling and dancing. And my dad was like, so they weren't vandalizing anything or fighting? And he was like, no, and we didn't get in trouble. So it was, it, that part was great. But as Jesus goes into the temple and he, he does something that just seems out of character for Jesus, he puts a stop to what they're doing turns over tables, kicks people out of the temple, and he stops the temple practice for the day. That's a pretty big deal. Thousands of people have traveled to Jerusalem, and center in Jerusalem was the temple, and all these people had traveled there. And one of the main things they would do is go into the temple. And where this is taking place is the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and they were not using it for that. So Jesus goes in and he kicks everybody out. And I do not think that this is an anger outburst or a temper tantrum. I think Jesus is the epitome of controlled strength. You know, usually, especially men, we're drawn to this story because they're like, look, Jesus was forceful. And when he needed to, he took matters into his own hands. And this was pretty forceful. But keep in mind, he's already been in the temple once. And he's been in the temple many times in his life. He knows what's going on there. So he doesn't go in the temple the first time and get really upset and just have this anger outburst. It's controlled strength. 
He leaves and he comes back and he has a plan and he knows what he's going to do when he comes back into the temple. It's not an anger outburst, but it's controlled strength. And he's making a dramatic point. He's had a dramatic entrance and now he's had another dramatic entrance in the temple. He stops the money changers. He drives people out. The animal sacrifices stop. And it will continue after this. But it's making a very strong point, indicating things are changing. The fig tree is withered. The temple leadership has failed, and God is doing something new. So another reflection question, reflection question number two, is to think about Jesus being in the temple clearing business, right? And the Apostle Paul, later on in early Christianity, writes all these letters. We find them in our New Testament. And he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and one of the things that he is warning this church is that they would go to these temples, and all sorts of um, sexual practices would go on in these temples. And Paul was warning them against this lifestyle of sexual immorality, and he tells them, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So keeping that new idea in mind, that new thought of the temple that Paul brings to us, and Jesus being in the temple clearing business, what does Jesus need to clear out of your temple? And I don't just mean physically. Like, I don't mean, like, what can you do to be physically healthier? I mean inwardly. As a human being, with a body and with a soul, the way that you live your life, the things that you think about, like, what would be necessary if Jesus were to come into your temple and have to clear something out? What would he need to clear out? In Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus has this conversation with the Pharisees. And they're obsessed with doing the outward stuff. They're washing their hands, cleaning the dishes. And, and then Jesus and his disciples, they don't wash their hands. They don't do any of that. So the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. He uses it as a teaching opportunity. And one of the things that Jesus tells them in Mark 7, it's not the things that go on the outside that makes a person unclean or defiles a person. It's what goes on within From within a person, internally, your heart. He said lust, pride, anger, slander, all those things, that's what goes on within a person that makes them unclean. So if Jesus needed to clean something out, what would that be? That's just a self-reflection question. So we get through the temple clearing and the fig tree stuff and the dramatic entrance, and then all of a sudden, in Mark 11, we have this short little teaching on prayer. And I want to read... Mark 11, I'll I'll read verse 22 because that's where the fig tree part ended. And Jesus says to Peter and the other disciples, have faith in God. And then in verse 23, it says, Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart but believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you of your trespasses. This seems disconnected with all the temple stuff and the fig tree stuff and the triumphal entry stuff. This just seems like a random, non-correlated teaching on prayer. But it is connected. And this teaching on prayer can be confusing or exciting. You know, Jesus alludes to faith and prayer. And not doubting and 
has this thing about if you really believe you can lift up this mountain and throw it in the sea and we don't believe that literally but we do believe that when it comes to prayer if we have faith Jesus says believe it and you've received it and that's difficult for some of you because you've probably prayed in great faith before and not received what you were praying for for some of you that's exciting because you're thinking maybe I need to have more faith when I pray But let's back up and let's connect this teaching of prayer with the temple. You see, in the ancient world, even in Judaism, the temple that God dwelled in was connected with prayer. They would go to the temple to pray. And in the second temple period, they would often, if they they weren't in Jerusalem, if they weren't at home, they would pray facing towards Jerusalem, facing towards the temple. Like we looked at Daniel chapter 6 just a few months ago. In one of the sermons, and Daniel goes out three times a day and he prays towards Jerusalem, towards the temple. So prayer and the temple are greatly connected with each other. And if Jesus is clearing out the temple, telling his disciples God is doing something new, and predicting that eventually the temple will no longer exist, well then how do you pray? You know, some rabbis believe that prayer was no longer possible without the temple. But what Jesus is saying is that everything is possible. Remember in Mark 10, the rich young ruler, when Jesus tells him to sell all your possessions and give to the poor, then come follow me, and then he walks away sad. And then his disciples say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus said, for man it's impossible, but for God all things are possible. Without a temple in Jerusalem, prayer is still possible. In fact, through Jesus, prayer is more accessible now than ever before. So Jesus is telling them, have faith in that. And that's one of the main points, I think, on his teaching on prayer and connecting it with the temple and the fig tree. And he talks about this idea of whatever you ask for. If you believe, you've received it. Now, last week, we actually talked a little bit about prayer. I looked at this story of James and John and the healing of Bartimaeus, and I told you I'm looking at that with a slant towards prayer. James and John come up to Jesus, and they say, grant for us whatever we ask. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they basically request to be at his right and his left. They request for power and prestige and elevated status. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And last week we looked at our motives behind prayer. James chapter 4, verse 3. You don't receive what it is you ask for because you ask for the wrong motives so that you can send it, spend whatever you get on your pleasures. So it's not like Jesus just abandons everything else he's taught and shown as an example for us on prayer when he says whatever you ask for. And he's still leading us towards prayer as formation and being formed into the will of God. So that's something important that we keep in mind as we talk about prayer And then he talks about forgiveness in verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you need to forgive someone or you have something against someone, forgive them so that your Heavenly Father will forgive your sins, your trespasses. It's easier for us when we read a passage like this to focus on the whole prayer and faith part. Because we want to believe that as we pray, we're going to receive what we're praying for. And, and I do. When I pray, I pray in faith, and I believe that God is hearing, and God is answering, and God is working. But it's a lot easier to, to just kind of overlook this forgiveness part. So Jesus says, connected with asking for forgiveness ourselves is 
extending forgiveness and grace and mercy towards others. It's easy to overlook this part. You know, I've mentioned before when, I've, when I did a sermon on the, the Lord's Prayer, that there was a time where I would pray the Lord's Prayer with my daughter every night, and I was just going from memory, and there was one part I kept forgetting, and then I was like, I left something out, didn't I? And then I go back through, and it was the part where Jesus talks about forgiveness, praying for forgiveness as we forgive others. I think I overlooked that subconsciously because that's hard. That requires us to do something. That requires us to really reflect on the nature of God. And if we want God to extend forgiveness and mercy to us, we have to also be willing to do that for others, just like Jesus does when he's on the cross. So that third reflection question is who or what do you need to forgive? In light of this discussion on prayer, what might we need to forgive? Who? Well, that makes sense. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you do need to forgive and extend mercy and grace to, but what? You know, maybe for some of you or you know people that are like this, maybe it's the church. Maybe you feel like the church has failed you and you've been frustrated or you've been hurt in the past, and it's not a person that you're not forgiving, it's just the church in general. Or maybe it's an institution or a company or a school, I don't know. Maybe that's what you need to forgive. And maybe some of you have been hurt by your own prayer life and you feel like in some points in your life God has abandoned you and he hasn't answered your prayers. And maybe you need to look towards forgiveness even as you pray. It's just a part of who we are. So we look at Mark 11, there's just kind of one summary question for this is what cleansings are necessary in order for us to offer this exuberant praise? This is where the chapter began. They're laying down their palm branches and they're offering this praise towards Jesus, Hosanna. And they don't completely understand what he's coming to do, so he has to clear out the temple and he has to do a few things, including the cross, before they can truly praise him for what he has come to do and what he has done for us. In our own life, what are things that need to be cleansed or cleared out so that we can truly praise God and and not be held back by whatever sin it may be or whatever grudge that we're holding on to? How can we be this receptive of Jesus in our own life and offer this exuberant praise? What's a necessary cleansing? For Jesus, he had a necessary cross to endure. And as the story goes on, this last week of his life is building towards his suffering on the cross. But as he already told his disciples, it doesn't end there. He's going to suffer, and he's going to rise on the third day. So this morning, we want to offer an invitation. If you need prayers, our shepherds will be around this room, and they will pray for you. They will talk with you if you need to. If you need to come up front, we will be up here to receive you. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to invite Tony back up. We're going to continue a time of worship.